Hey, and welcome to the OS Training Podcast. I'm Steve Birch, and in this episode, I'm interviewing Daniel Bakuba. Daniel has been involved in just about every area of the WordPress project. He started over a decade ago working with small college publishers and running a hosting company. He developed dozens of different plugins, including a couple that we've adopted here. And he's moved on to contributing really heavily to important projects such as WPCLI, the command line interface for WordPress, the REST API, and now Gutenberg. And I've probably forgotten a whole bunch of other stuff. He worked for Automatics WordPress VIP agency and RT Camp, which is another big WordPress agency. He's basically done all sorts of things. And... When we were talking with him earlier this year to buy one of his plugins, he was building his dream office in his backyard. He was building an office in his garden shed. And we start by talking about his love of construction and building physical things, and then go through his career and talk about his open source philosophy, how he finances his work, and whether he's excited or not for the launch of Gutenberg after a year of hard work. This week's episode is sponsored by Publish Press. Publish Press is a plugin that creates really great publishing tools for WordPress, and they're part of the OS training family of companies. One of the ironic things about Publish Press sponsoring this podcast is that lots of the pieces of Publish Press are based on work that Daniel has done. The main Publish Press plugin is a fork and an update of Editflow that he talks about in this episode, and bylines which Daniel developed, was sold to us and the OS training family by Daniel. And it allows you to add multiple authors to a single WordPress post. So if you haven't done so yet, head over to Publish Press and check it out. It owes a debt of thanks to the work of Daniel. And if you're running a busy site that publishes lots of content, hopefully Publish Press will have some tools that will help you run your WordPress site more effectively. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the OS training podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Daniel, I think the last time we talked was when we purchased a WordPress plugin from you, Bylines, which allows you to add multiple authors to a WordPress post. And you were out in Oregon, and you just finished building a whole new shed, which was going to be your shed quarters, your office headquarters. Is that where you are today? It is, in fact. You were, it had been like a months, months long project. You'd built an enormous home office out the back of your house. You detailed it lovingly online. How's it going now? You know, I'm not an interior designer, and the experience of finishing out the interior of my shed has educated me on that fact. So I think just like anyone working on a software project, you learn a lot of things, uh, not necessarily the hard way because it's usable, but you learn a lot of things the first time you do it. So do you consider yourself a DIY Amateur and expert? I would say aspirational or wannabe. Okay. I'm always humbled by and impressed by those who have better DIY skills than I. Well, I think it probably appeals to the same part of the mind that engineering and computer science does. I know quite a few people who they'll do like carpentry work or like detailed manual labor in their spare time and then they're engineers for their day job. Right. It is a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. And the software world is kind of infinitely more malleable than the real world. So for instance, with this shed quarters, I put transom windows right in front of me. Transom windows are, you know, short row of windows up much higher. Cause I thought 
well, rightfully, I didn't want a bunch of glare on my computer screen. But now, in hindsight, I realize it makes the shed quarters feel more like a cave, and that I want a big old window right in front of me, and I can mitigate the glare issue potentially with some awning or something like that in front of it. And it's not like I can just write a pull request and make this happen. It's a gotta think about it. Don't know how to tear apart the wall without causing the whole shed to fall over, you know, you know, kind of break what I have in a pretty substantial way. So I'll probably have to spend some time planning out what I want to do and then do it. Okay, maybe it teaches you, uh, I mean, not that you don't do this anyway, but it teaches you a bit more long-term thinking. It's almost like um, constructing a, a massive software project and actually going back and fixing your mistakes becomes incredibly difficult after a while. Yes, and plenty of people do it every day, you know, carpenters and contractors and so on. More so, I think it teaches me humility that we have it pretty easy in the software world <laughs> and the rest of the world doesn't have it, you know, as easy as, as we do. We even have continuous integration that tells us when stuff is failing without us actually have to manually testing it. So we got it pretty good. Yeah, there's no undo button if you've managed to break something. Right. You'd have to go to Home Depot, buy a new one. Oh, yeah. Repeat the whole process again. So... You work out of Oregon. How do you how do you introduce yourself? You wear many, many hats if you're shaking someone's hand for the first time. How would you say what do you say your job is? Uh, software engineer. Okay. Translates pretty well. <laughs> or for someone that's a bit more involved in the WordPress community. Software engineer. <laughs> you're probably at the point where your name recognition introduces yourself. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. If it does, then that's helpful because I, d I don't really have to... Well, maybe I do because maybe they have the wrong impression of me. But I think that the challenge is explaining what I do to the layperson quickly. I haven't yet figured out how to explain it in a way that is interesting to them. So I'll start going off in a rabbit hole of what I do, and then they very quickly, you know, eyes roll to the back of the head, zoned out, you know. What is he talking about? I'm so lost. Well, I think this might be part of the problem that you do Gutenberg, the WP REST API, you do WP CLI and Field Manager, Shortcake, WP Redis, Co-Authors Plus, Editflow, Jetpack, Post, Meta Inspector, Publishing Checklist, Rewrite Rules Inspectors, Safe Redirect Manager, Sortie WordPress, WP Native Sessions, WP SAML Auth. Those are just a few of your plugins. I know a couple that are missing from that list at least. You have your fingers in just about every area of WordPress at the moment. How did you get started? You have such a massive involvement in the WordPress community now. Have you always been an engineer, a computer engineer? I haven't. In fact, I wanted to be a professional photographer. In my freshman year, I applied to six unpaid photo internships and one paid web production internship. And I didn't hear back from any of the photo internships and got the web production internship. And at that point, it was pretty clear to me where the career was. You know, my parents raised me to be at least somewhat practical. So my entry point into WordPress really began when I was working at my student newspaper at the University of Oregon. And we were on a proprietary CMS called College Publisher. And I've linked the uh, article in the show notes, but I wrote a blog post 
you know, death to proprietary content management systems. Let's take our futures back, that sort of thing. Because I wanted to get the Daily Emerald off of College Publisher. And in that process, formed a hosting company for student newspapers with other students across the U.S., different colleges. We called it CoPress. We ended up with about 55 clients on our roster. This is all 08, 09. And then we had to fold that business because it didn't make any money. Okay. <laughs> because we didn't charge any money because our customers didn't really want to pay any money. In fact, competing with College Publisher was competing against free because College Publisher provided the publishing platform in exchange for take of the advertising revenue. So, but at that point, I was not a developer. In fact, I didn't know much of anything. What I did was, in classic open source fashion, came up with an idea and then convinced other people to work on it for free. And so, you know, started you know, making progress on some plugins that way, but also began to learn how to program on my own by getting other people to teach me. Okay, so you had really no software background before this job. You were self-taught in terms of PHP initially? You know, I had one C++ class in high school, and that was about it. <laughs> so you managed to jump in fairly quickly to start a hosting company and then to start writing plugins as well. How were you teaching yourself? Because 10 years ago, there were no online videos, very few books. Were you just hacking around, jumping on Copy, paste, books? fatal error, Google, 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 waste all Saturday afternoon, give up, eventually figure it out, rinse and repeat. <laughs> it's a pretty brutal process. But you managed to build some really pretty popular plugins. Perhaps EditFlow is the one you're best known for, which directly attacked some of the needs of the college publishers? Yes. So EditFlow came about when we were working on CoPress. I can't take credit for building it because, you know, frankly, it was a team group effort. Mojangda did a lot of the programming. Andrew Spittle did some design wireframes. We had contributions from a guy by the name of Joe Boydston. You know, like open, many open source projects, it was... Uh, the sum of many, many different parts and contributions. And EditFlow, the problem that it was solving for was workflows in publishing uh, companies. So the student newspaper that I was working with had story assignment whiteboard in the office. So if you wanted to know what story you're meant to go out and write about, interviews you're supposed to do, photo shoots that you were supposed to do, you had to go into the office and look at the whiteboard. And when I, you know, this is, you know, 07, 08, 09, it's, you know, we've got the internet, everyone has a laptop. Why are we still using this whiteboard? I don't think Google Docs, Google Docs probably didn't exist at the time. No. Google Docs's predecessor was Rightly, and that might have existed, but I don't recall. So we built a lot of that into the back end of WordPress with EditFlow. So you were working with the newspapers and upskilling yourself, becoming a, a better developer. How did you jump from thinking of yourself as a someone involved in publishing to to join the WordPress community full-time, to start getting jobs in WordPress, to start contributing so much time to WordPress? Sure. So from CoPress, when we finally folded that, I went and worked at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism in New York City as digital media manager. So it was kind of like internet jack-of-all-trades. I did back-end server stuff, you know, front-end stuff, 
print ad design, taught HTML and CSS uh, classes, that sort of thing. And then from there, I ended up at the WordPress.com VIP team with Automatic. And that was really the turning point for me as a developer and also somewhat professionally in a couple ways. One is one of the services offered, provided by VIP is line by line code review. And so they have a team of technical support engineers that read every commit that goes to production. And I was one of those at a time. And I read tens or hundreds of thousands of lines of code in my time at VIP, probably hundreds. And going from a not very good developer and then having to read that much code really leveled up my understanding of architecture and patterns. And, you know, you read kind of every possible pattern of code. And in the few months after I left VIP, I actually didn't get to write that much code while I was at VIP. But in the few months after I left, when I was working at Human Made, I could just see my ability to write code and architect code, you know, dramatically, dramatically increase. Huh, so you got a lot better simply by almost stopping writing any code for a few months reading and just other reading people's it. Goes. No, this is uh, two years. And you know what? You know, they pay people to work for VIP, but it's also the sort of thing, like it was such a valuable learning experience for me that they should have charged me, you know, so. You took a lot of that learning on yourself, right? You you jumped over to New York to work there and I guess VIP, they have a lot of New York-based customers, they, they do a lot of New York work for The New York deal agencies. was, I lived in New York for a year working for CUNY and then in that year I came home to Portland seven times. And I realized that I really like Oregon and enjoy visiting New York. And so moving back to, so I, you know, I was set on leaving New York and looking for a job. And because Automatic is fully distributed, you know, I could live anywhere, including, you know, where I grew up. And so I took a job with Automatic and moved back to Oregon. Oh, okay. So you're still working remotely there, still servicing VIP clients from, from right. back home? So you ended up working for these enormous customers that VIP had. How did you make the leap to becoming such an active contributor? You've been working with the WP CLI project for, for a good number of years now, and you're actually going to be the REST API lead for WordPress 5.0. How do you end up making the move from working for these big companies to contributing so heavily to WordPress? Sure. My entry point was at VIP. At the time, there were, you know, 100, couple hundred standalone PHP scripts that VIP had for performing various tasks. For instance, assign a category to all blog posts that have an existing category. And, you know, client VIP client would write in and ask for, you know, a request, can you do this? And then we'd go find the script and run the script for them. The problem with those scripts is that they all had different and inconsistent usage instructions. So you'd waste 15 minutes trying to figure out how the script worked before actually running it each time. And I got pretty frustrated by that. So I started asking around, you know, wanting to change things. And Thorsten Ott, who's been a longtime member of the WordPress community, pointed me to WPCLI, where I started uh, contributing uh, a lot of the code that was already in VIP to the WPCLI project. So it was in its early days when you took over, you became the lead developer for WPCLI? 
Yes, I became the maintainer when Scribu stepped down. What was that 2013, 2014? When you took over WPCLI, it was, it was getting started, but at this point, several years later, it's not just the dominant command line interface for WordPress, but lots of other hosting companies are building on top of it as well. So you can get like a, a Pantheon-specific set of CLI commands as well. How did you manage to grow it so big? That's a great question. I don't have a great answer to it. I think, like a lot of things, one, it just struck a chord. It was the right thing at the right time. And popular you know in running a business you know often you have the question of do i have product market fit and if you're asking yourself do i have product market fit you probably don't have product market fit because when you do it's quite obvious and with open source projects too you know the usage grows organically if it's truly a useful valuable you know thing that you've produced and so in WPCLI's case, it was simply a matter of feeding the beast and doing what I thought was important to do, but I didn't have any sort of growth strategy. In fact, at a certain point, it grew too large for me to deal with on a part-time basis, you know, unpaid and that sort of thing. Support scales exponentially with usage somehow. And I think that that's one thing about open source projects that people don't really truly acknowledge. So you've done a whole bunch of different plugins, a whole bunch of different projects, and you've seen some that maybe didn't take off or some that stuttered, but WPCLI was one of those things where as soon as you started working on it, the demand was almost overwhelming and obvious. Yeah, and I have, you know, Scribu, whose real name is Christy, to thank a lot for that. All the contributors to the WPCLI project along the way and Andreas, who is actually the original creator and ended up just working on it for, I think, a few weeks or a couple months before he handed it off to Christy. Okay, so WPCLI now, it's part of an official WordPress project? Yeah, it's a part of the official WordPress project. Okay, so now it has a team behind it and has some... Kind of, sort of. <laughs> a little bit of financial backing, perhaps? I would have to say that commentary about the WordPress project on a whole is that it is amazing how much the project gets done being so poorly resourced from a manpower perspective and a funding perspective and whatever. So becoming part of the official WordPress project may not help much from a financial perspective, but maybe it brings more eyeballs and more more volunteers. You know, ultimately what it does provide is long-term continuity. And in the sense that, in the perspective that, you know, being the maintainer of WP, or when I was the maintainer of WPCLI, I had no long-term strategy or plan. You know, when I could no longer maintain it, then the best that I could do is just throw my hands up and discuss and give up. And, you know, everyone would be negatively impacted from that. So in some senses, an open source project is debt burden that grows over time and the maintainer is responsible for it as it grows. And so in transitioning the WPCLI project to become a official WordPress project, I've the debt burden now falls on the WordPress project. So when, you know, I no longer want to contribute or Elaine never wants to work on it anymore, you know, it's not our responsibility to figure out what its future is. 
it's the responsibility for its future lies with the WordPress project itself. For better or for worse, you know, but that's for individual maintainers, it's a you know big sigh of relief. I think I remember seeing a blog post of yours once where you said, um, oh, commiserations, you are now in charge of an open source project. Oh, my condolences. Yeah, it's a talk I gave at WordCamp Europe, in fact. So I've just shared another link, open source is debt, kind of like financial framing, it dis better describes. And I'll also share the link to my, or my blog post with my WordCamp Europe talk. So the idea of the blog post is that open source is a burden that a company must carry around as opposed to some free lunch in terms of contributions that it's actually a fairly massive responsibility compared to keeping the project closed source? Well, depends upon some financial concepts that are important to understand. So debt is a financial construct where you can achieve some short-term gain. So for instance, you know, a homeowner will take out a mortgage and the mortgage is debt that they are required to service over time and pay off. And in taking that debt, they are enabled to take a short-term gain or, you know, take advantage of some short-term gain, which is buying the home and owning the home, right? And so open source, in this same framing, open source is software that businesses use to shorten the time to market and accelerate their product. And so rather than owning the entirety of the development cost, they are able to leverage existing open source work, you know, in towards whatever business goals that they have. And so there's this debt that exists out there you know, time and effort associated with the ongoing maintenance of the project that they don't own entirely. In fact, they want to own as little as possible. It's kind of an interesting, I think, framing because you think about like a company like Automatic working on Gutenberg, you know, primary corporate sponsor of the WordPress project, you know, is getting tens of thousands of QA hours out of you know open source community for this Gutenberg product by applying the open source development methodology. So without putting any value judgments on it, you know, I think that that is a, there's kind of a way of framing and a way of understanding how open source projects manifest themselves, you know, in the last decade. And when it's, you know, prior to WPCLI becoming the, an official WordPress project, it was a, tool where I owned all of the maintenance debt, you know, if someone files a bug and says, this is a problem, you know, it's on me to fix it from a, you know, social systems perspective. Otherwise my reputation is negatively tarnished because I'm not fixing bugs in a timely manner. Right? So the debt's on me, but it is every company, every business gets to use WPCLI for free you know, free of charge to accelerate their business. And accelerating business means that they get to do more within their business with less effort because for them to develop a, an equivalent tool to WPCLI internally would be, you know, kind of an astronomical cost. So I've got a couple of questions that come from that. One is about the lessons you've learned from, from this. Is one of the lessons you've learned with the handover story you told us about WPCLI and also the process that you went through when you sold bylines to us and 
and perhaps other projects. Is one of the open source lessons you've learned that once you're done with something, you need to have a clean break, you need to put it in other hands to pass it on? I know some of your plugins have passed to Automatic, some have passed to the official WordPress project. Is it better to be decisive and pass on projects to someone else rather than just leave them lingering? Oh, yeah, that's certainly my opinion. Okay. For, ultimately, for me, what it boils down to is mental health and is much more... I live a much happier life being able to put a bow on things than letting them linger. And I, you know, quite to give you a visual metaphor, it's as though you're working at a desk. It's the difference between having a desk that's full of clutter and crap versus having a desk that just has what you're working on it, what, what you're working on. You, know, you can focus on just what you're working on and not be bothered by all of the clutter and crap. And from a financial point of view, what lessons have you learned when it comes to your work on Gutenberg and the WP REST API? Are you looking for sponsors? Are you looking for just to do this part-time while you have a day job? What kind of lessons have you learned when it comes to financing all the, the hours and hours of work you're doing for the WordPress project at the moment? Well, a couple of things. One, I, I do believe in the fire for the future, and I think that that is a it's good framing for long-term investments into the economic ecosystem that you're a part of, you know, and if you aren't doing that, well, that's fine. You're under no obligation to, but in the same way, like, you know, visual metaphor, real world, you know, if you've got some, you know, manufacturing plant that's next to a town, and you're polluting because there's no rules that say that you can't pollute, but you, you're knowingly polluting, like, is that morally right or morally wrong? And I think it's morally wrong and that you should opt for, you know, investing what you can into the ecosystem that surrounds you that's not necessarily tracked in the economic equation. So kind of like high level, that's my framing. That's what I really believe more pragmatically, you know, it's really about time management. And so 5% of my time is like two hours a week or eight hours a month. And it, you don't get a lot done in that. You know, if you are well-versed with the project and can provide strategic value, then that is a good amount of time to provide strategic direction and input. But in terms of just getting stuff done, like you're not going to be building new features on that. And another thing for me too, is I've started spending a lot of time in my local business community and helping out with STEM education and that sort of thing. And so for me, like the five for the future is more like 10 to 15% of my time for the future where five to 10% are being consumed by, you know, volunteering at the elementary school and sitting on some committees and that sort of thing. But I view those kind of as like long-term investments in, in the same way that, you know, companies have historically had research departments and those research departments aren't expected to return an immediate or, you know, produce an immediate return, but they produce longer term value that the company still benefits from, even if it's not directly benefit. So you've been um, up early this morning I'm talking to you like 8.30 in the morning, Oregon time, and I think you already had a meeting before. You sound as if you're incredibly 
organized and disciplined about your time. You mentioned that you're normally done by like four o'clock in the afternoon each day. Are you really tightly scheduled, really conscious of your time, given that you are so busy? I'd say conscious of my time, yes. Tightly scheduled, I try not to be because I think in order to be creative, you need to have big blocks of uninterrupted time. And so I, I try to strike the balance between scheduled, you know, meetings, whatever, versus having big blocks of open time where I know that there's one or two primary tasks that I want to accomplish in that period, but I really don't know whether it's going to take 30 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes. Oh, okay. So you, you, have you ever read that book, Deep Work by... I haven't, you know, but it's on my to-read list. And generally the thing that I feel about lots of books and philosophies, you know, getting things done, Pomodoro technique or whatever, like it, they're great to learn from, try to identify what values and principles that they are communicating. But ultimately the thing that works best for you is the thing that works best for you. And it's up to you to design your own system, you know, that kind of fits like a glove. Yeah. His idea is that you should take blocks of five or six hours in which you can get very deep work done, highly focused work. Mm -hmm. And you're right, for for me, my kids aren't even in school for six hours a day. So by the time I've picked them up and got them back and mm -hmm. maybe take them to an activity, the maximum block I can get is perhaps two hours in a day. Mm -hmm. The idea is nice and if you can adapt it to your situation, great. Well, and the idea is nice and it's applicable if you are working on big, you know, projects where you need that amount of focus time. I can't focus on something for five hours. Oh, like, no, most, like I need like, I can do like an hour and a half or two and then I need a mental break. And so I think it's a understand that that can be a strategy for accomplishing work and understand that there are other strategies too. So for instance, you know, normally I'm done by four, like with the 5.0 stuff that's going on right now, I am definitely not done by four. And so I was working yesterday evening, catching up on some client work. And I, you know, there are a couple of bigger, you know, require thought, you know, things they could work on. And I'm like, my mind's so far gone today. I can't do that. I need the kind of like hit the button, hit the button, hit the button type of tasks. And so that's, and I had those tasks on my plate that I could do. And so that was fine. That's what I did. So you mentioned 5.0, I think there's a, a whole ton of fascinating stuff that we could talk about with you, your WordPress story. But you did mention the 5.0 word and... I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. It's going to be great. I was trying to avoid uh, get to this whole podcast without mentioning the G word once. We don't have to mention it. We okay. can just, we'll just call it the know G word. what we're talking about. So tell people, what are you doing for 5.0? What's your role? Are you, you're focused on the REST API? Yeah, so my title is REST API Release Lead. And so I'm focusing on the REST API being the bridge between the G word and the PHP side of WordPress. And pragmatically, what that's meant is, for instance, yesterday I committed this new search endpoint that allows you to search across posts and pages, but it also has an abstraction so that you could plug in your own search endpoint, well, search endpoint data rather, and return users as results or, you know, data from some remote API into the results, that sort of thing. What it's used for right now is link, the URL input component and link suggestions. But just as an example of one of the 
dozen or a couple dozen things I've committed in the last several days. So am I right in thinking that the G word Gutenberg is actually the end result of a lot of the work that you and your colleagues have done on the REST API, that it's built on the REST API, that it's a consumer of the REST API. It wouldn't be possible without the REST API work. Oh, that's exactly true. And one of the principal complaints of the REST API was when it landed in the core was it's not proven. You know, there's no real larger real world applications of this REST API. So how do we know it's ready? How do we know it's any good? You know, should it go in? So and so forth. And I, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and there's lots of opinions. And the reality is that went in in four point seven, and now the G word is the first kind of like large, at least large internal application of the REST API. And you know, for the most part it worked great, you know, um, it didn't have to be refactored. The REST API didn't have to be refactored. And there's been enhancements that we've made along the way and a couple new controllers that are landing. But for the most part, the work for the G word for 5.0 as it relates to the REST API has just been iteration refinement. Well, from what I've been reading, you inspired the Drupal community. Obviously, they picked up on Gutenberg itself, but also the whole approach as well. They were looking to to redesign the Drupal 8 admin. It's a little slow. It really hasn't changed much over the last 10 years or so. And they'd been looking at the approach you guys took with Gutenberg and started to think, if we're going to redesign Drupal, why don't we do it page by page using internal examples? We'll take the Drupal API and start to create JavaScript versions of the admin pages one by one. They were impressed with the work that you guys had done. Yeah. Oh, I mean, everyone else has done way more work than I have. So <laughs> to pass, that, pass that along to all the contributors. And I, I do, I have a ton of respect for like the ambition that Matt has placed or forwarded with this project. And all of the concerns that everyone has are totally valid. And I think that they are, you know, if you attempt a project that this ambitious, there will naturally be problems. But it's kind of like, well, <laughs> I'll just go for it because it's known as a big ship. But it's kind of like building the Titanic, you know, which is, you know, massive ocean liner of its day. <laughs> And then complaining the, uh, about like, oh, the paint job like isn't perfect. It's like, we know that we just need to launch this ship because it's been in progress for so long, you know, and that, and that's kind of like a useful framing too for, you know, there's people that are like, you know, we should wait till January to launch this. Frankly, there's not a lot that can be changed in two months time that's going to make a meaningful difference. That is a justifiable reason to delay. Like the band-aid just needs to be torn off and we need to be able to get it out there and you know move on with our lives. It's funny you mentioned the cruise ship analogy. Yeah, just, I know, because the um, Titanic sunk. But it was the first was, ship that I could think of. It <laughs> was I'm, impressive. I was gonna come from a slightly different direction. The apart from the, the obvious Titanic jokes, I was watching a, um, a Netflix documentary the other night about how they actually build these cruise ships nowadays mm -hmm. and what enormously big and complicated projects they are. They built one, in this particular cruise ship case, 
they built one half of it in the north of Italy, one in the south, floated them together, joined them together, welded them together. And up until the very, very last minute, they were unsure if it was going to float properly. They, like midnight on the night before all these rich guests were going to come on the cruise ship, they were frantically running around, sealing, fixing things, and not quite sure if it was going to be seaworthy or not. And even with these enormous multi-multi-million dollar projects where people's lives are at stake, they're still rushing at the very last minute to get things done. Oh, I'm sure. If you're going to take on a project of this scale, it's going to be a frantic exercise. It's going to... Well, and um, imagine building a new cruise ship while you're already on a cruise ship that people are on. <laughs> and so you've got to hot swap the cruise ship while the cruise is in motion. Building a cruise ship is actually far larger of an endeavor than Gutenberg, but you know, we're, we're, we're definitely replacing the engine while the car is in motion. So from the sounds of it, and I don't want to get you in any trouble, from the sounds of it, you're fairly confident that the November date will hold for Gutenberg? Uh, who knows? Okay. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I think that things are tracking that way, but there are certainly the potential for unknown unknowns, and I would not hold my breath. I would bet on it, but I wouldn't hold my breath. And they've built those things into the schedule with some fallback dates. Exactly. So, cool. And it's everyone that's working on it, it's not their first rodeo. You know, like this, it's all been done before, so... Okay, so final question. You sound excited. Are you excited about Gutenberg? I was excited like a year ago, and now I'm just tired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is a big, endless project. I do, you know, so I got involved last November after I saw the demo that Matthias gave at WordCamp US. And when I saw that demo, I thought, whoa, this is good. Because I think it's really important when developing software to have an appreciation for the software from a user's perspective. And I know it's easy to say that, but there is a distinction between people that do and people that don't. Because you have to be able to like get excited about the product. So I've used you know Google Docs forever. Dropbox Paper also has quite a nice editor experience and so when i saw matthias you know demo the version of gutenberg at wordcamp us i thought whoa that is really cool and i want to work on that just because at the end of the day we have a lot of choice in how we choose to spend our time and we get to choose the things that are intellectually interesting to us and challenging and you know provide long-term value to our careers so you are one of those rare people that come on the podcast that are not on Twitter anymore. How can people follow you and keep up with your work and what you're doing? You can follow my blog by RSSYO. <laughs> there we go. That's old school. Yeah, I might hook up some email thing if people wanted to do that, but I haven't been bothered to take the time. Okay, so if people want to follow your work, they go to... DanielBachyber.com. Okay. And you're writing in Gutenberg there? Yeah. And I write about housing and I write about, oh, what's my most recent blog post? It was a new kind of economy, an interview with Andrew Yang, who's a presidential candidate for whatever the next presidential race is. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So go there. Interesting 
posts on WordPress and the economy in general. Daniel, thank you so much. I wish you all the best. Hey, thanks with for your, having me. Your projects for the next few months of the year. Yeah, and good luck to you too.